Pastor Mike, good evening everyone. Thank you for coming out tonight. What a blessing to hear. How so many of you are blessed. I count myself among your ranks. I somewhat selfishly believe that God brought her here in large part for my sake. She pretty quickly became a spiritual mother to me. We talked regularly and I had to set apart a good chunk of time when that was coming because that woman could talk about everything and so we talked a long time. She encouraged me constantly. Uh, I learned a whole lot about grace. I learned a lot about caring for people. Honestly, I learned a lot about pastoring from, from Lydia. And I selfishly believe also that God brought her here for me to take her from me. Um, I learned much about grace and about the gospel and about caring for people and about pastoring getting to walk through the end of life uh, with her and being privileged, as Ms. Roberta pointed out, to, to watch her die well, um, because that's a rare thing uh, these days. Um, God was very gracious to me, to all of us, through the life and death of Lydia. I think he really focused me and, and sobered me and, and taught me a lot um, through her, for which I'm just eternally grateful. Um, but if you knew Lydia, you knew that the last thing Lydia wanted was to be made much of. Um, the last thing that she wanted was for attention to be drawn to her and to her greatness. Uh, not long after her diagnosis, once it was pretty clear that it was a death diagnosis, uh, Mike and I went over to her house to meet with her, and the crux of the conversation was that she did not want any sort of funeral or memorial service at all. We would, of course, we told her we'd respect her wishes. Yes, I mean, she gets to choose. We would do what she wanted. But we talked with her. We answered some questions she had. We, we shared with her a little bit about the purpose of such services, the blessing of being confronted with the reality of death, the, the goodness of the opportunity to corporately mourn together, the gift of remembering a dear sister in the Lord, and most importantly, the opportunity to, to glorify God and magnify His grace. So she, we left, and we left it kind of at that. We prayed together and had a great time together, but we left it. But she eventually came around and called me and said that she wanted to do it. She described it to me as a pretty dramatic change of heart on her part. Why? Why the dramatic change? Well, only because it was just one more opportunity for the gospel to go forth and for the God that she so loved to be further glorified. If she could be remembered and mourned and celebrated as a means of glorifying the grace of God to and through her, then she was all for it. And so that's what I'm here to do. We've talked about Lydia. Let's take a couple of minutes to talk about Lydia's Lord. We've heard how blessed we've been by Lydia. Let's hear how blessed we are by the Christ who blessed us through Lydia, both through her life and through her death. If you would, open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It's on page 953 in the Pew Bible, or I think it's there inside the, the bulletin as well. I want to briefly look at verses 18 through 23 with you all. I'm sure you have also experienced this before, but you've read a text dozens of times, maybe hundreds of times even, and then all of a sudden you just see something that you'd never seen before. I feel like, well, I've never read that before. Right? When you know that you have read that before, Many, many times. I had never noticed this before, though I had read it many, many times. And here's the main idea of the message this evening. Death is yours. What does that mean? It sounds strange because we're not supposed to talk about death these days. It's the great unmentionable. But it is the occasion 
for our gathering here this evening. It is death that draws us together, and so we must face it and we must consider it. And I want to do so this evening by reminding you that death is yours. One of the main things that I appreciated about Lydia in her final months was her constant encouragement to me to talk about her death. I wouldn't, you put it, I wouldn't write it in my notes, but I'd been so with her and talking with her and just was so thinking about her that it would come out in my sermons and I'd mention something and then I'd always call her afterwards and apologize because I knew she was watching. I, was like, I, didn't, you know, I didn't mean to go into all that. And she just kept encouraging me and said, talk about my death, talk about my death, please use my death not to draw attention to her, but to draw attention to the reality of death because we tend to avoid it. We don't really know what to do with it. And we, what we do end up doing with it often ends up looking little different than what the world does with it. But the more that I read God's Word and the more that I read old books, the more aware I become of maybe how, differently we are, how different we are today and how much we have started to diverge from those in the faith who have gone before us. And that difference and divergence is particularly pronounced when it comes to the topic of death. And so my goal this evening is not only to comfort you, I I do hope to comfort you, God's word is the only true comfort, but I hope to do so a bit like we've been seeing Christ do so in John chapter 5, to comfort and to confront, or to comfort by confronting, comfort by challenging you with the claims of Christ, especially tonight, the claims of Christ in regards to death. For, as Spurgeon says, we are wise to talk of our last hours, to be familiar with the thought of our departure from this world. So let's, let's be wise tonight. And that's precisely what 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and the whole beginning of 1 Corinthians is all about. It's all about wisdom. Were this a regular sermon with a full allotment of time, I would probably give you five points. Something like point number one, God's wisdom is not the world's wisdom. Therefore, point number two, trust not the world's wisdom. Four, number three, all things are yours in Christ. Which then means, number four, death is yours in Christ. And fifth and main point would have been, all that is because you are Christ's. But for the sake of time and the occasion, let's boil that down to the last two points. Two brief points this evening. Uh, Remember these and live and die well. Point number one, quite simply, death is yours. Point number two, for you are Christ's. Here's the sum of what Paul is saying in this brief passage. Here's how he encourages and motivates the Corinthians and how I want to encourage and motivate you in the face of death tonight. Know what you have and know whose you are. Know what you have and know whose you are. Death is yours, for you are Christ's. Know that, and know that death for you, as for Lydia, is utterly transformed. Let's read God's word. There's no one in this room that loved God's word as much as Lydia did. Uh, We can honor her well by diving into the word that she so loved. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I'm only going to read for you verses 18 through 23, but pay attention because this is what God wants to say to you tonight. Paul writes, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, 
He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's and Christ is God's. If you would bow with me and let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for how gracious you are uh, to us. We thank you um, for the great gift that Lydia has been to us. We thank you for the gift of her life. Father, we thank you for the gift of her death. We pray that you would use her and use it to magnify and to glorify your name. We thank you for the reminders uh, tonight already of how good you have been to us through Lydia. We ask uh, that you would do that still right now um, through this word. Father, Lydia found life in your word. Um, She found her Lord and she found her Savior in the word. Father, I pray that you would now direct us and focus us on this word for these next few minutes. Um, Father, use this wonderful word to challenge us, to comfort us, and to, to encourage us. Most importantly, use it to glorify your name and use it to draw us to your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask this all in his name. Amen. Point number one, death is yours, but we've got to get there quickly first. Uh, Some quick Corinthians context. Uh, Paul writes this letter to the church in Corinth, which is in Greece, and that church had some problems. We always say, hey, let's go back to the the apostolic church. Uh, It was a mess. Uh, here's, Here's the church in Corinth. Paul writes in large part to address the problems in that church, and he does so by reminding them of the gospel and then also of its logical implications. And one of the most important implications of the gospel for the church is unity. If you ever read all of Paul's letters, he writes most strongly against false teaching, which we get. But man, he writes almost equally strongly against division and against disunity. Neither have any place in the church of Christ. Both are contradictory to the gospel of grace. But Corinth is divided. And that's largely what Paul deals with in the first part of the book. Our passage is part of that section. But Paul wants for them, in chapter 1, verse 10, agreement, no division, that they may be united. Why aren't they divided? What are, why aren't they united? What are they dividing over? Well, it's, it's, in part, it's different leaders and different teachers in the church. They're taking sides. And in verse 17, Paul drops a word, a hint that is at the heart of the division, and that it's going to consume his focus for these first four chapters. And that word in 117 is wisdom. This whole section is about wisdom. But their problem was not biblical wisdom, but their love and pursuit of worldly wisdom. They had been distracted and diverted by the wisdom of the world, and it was leading to division. The Greeks, that context, they were all about Wisdom, And it was a wisdom in which man was at the very center. A wisdom in which man was great. And the greatness of any individual man or speaker or teacher was dependent in large part on his ingenuity and his, the impressiveness, the rhetoric of his words. But at its, at its heart, this worldly wisdom is a wisdom with no regard to God and thus a wisdom with great regard for man. This wisdom boasts in man and it trusts in man. Thus, 
Paul's going to point out that it is utterly contrary to to true wisdom and the cross. Which means that this worldly wisdom is a worthless wisdom. Look at verse 19 of chapter 3. He says the wisdom of this world is folly with God. It's foolishness to God. Chapter 121, he says, In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, through its wisdom. So it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And Woodside, here's our verse. Here's who we are and what we do. 123, we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews. Folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, to Lydia, Christ, the power of God and wisdom of God. So, no wisdom found in the world. Wisdom found only in Christ. Therefore, simple, obvious, easy application, be wary of the world's wisdom. Do not overvalue and overtrust those whom Scripture declares to be dead, blind fools. This is this biblical language. The world is constantly putting forward solutions to problems that only the gospel can solve. So don't be too impressed with that which God calls foolishness. And so, chapter 3, verse 18, in the world's eyes, be willing to be seen as a fool. I'm on a crusade against cool. I'm I'm tired of, of cool consuming churches. Not cool, but fool. Cool in the world's eyes, a fool in God's eyes. A fool in the world's eyes, wise in God's eyes. And if that's the case, chapter 3, 21, Paul says, then let no one boast in men. Do not glory in the world. Do not trust in the world. Do not seek the wisdom of the world. Do not seek your well-being in the world. Because back to chapter 1, verse 29, no one can boast in the presence of a perfect God. No one can stand before him. Fallen, sinful man has nothing to stand upon, nothing to show, no hope in himself. And so please take heed, seek not, trust not, glory not in the wisdom of the world. God's wisdom is not the world's wisdom. The church desperately needs to believe that today. God's wisdom is infinitely superior to the world's wisdom. So look to nothing else. Trust in nothing else. Why not? Look at the second phrase of verse 21. Pay attention to his logic, his argument. For all things are yours. Do you see what he's saying? You're tempted, I'm tempted, to seek the world's wisdom. You are tempted to boast in things other than Christ because you are seeking to gain things from them. You seek satisfaction. You seek happiness. You seek Uh, Peace, fulfillment, love, identity, whatever it is. And so you turn to the world and look to the world because you think you can get things from it. But look at what Paul's saying. Christian, why would you do that? That's foolishness. Why? All things are already yours. What things? Look at Paul's list here. Verse 22, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, right? So those are the leaders that they were fighting and dividing over. Right? It's going back to chapter 1 in the context. Why would you fight and divide over uh, these guys? All of them are all of yours. Why divide over that which is already yours, given to you by God? Keep reading. Look at these five things. He keeps going. There's those three. Here's kind of a separate set of five. The world or life or death or the present, 
or the future, all are yours. What are those five things? Gordon Fee says those are the five ultimate tyrannies of human existence. The five ultimate tyrannies of human existence. These are the five main things that people live in lifelong bondage to as slaves. Right? As you seek your ultimate happiness in these things, these things master you, they control you. So what can it mean that these things now in Christ all are yours? Well, it means it flips the tables. It means that now instead of you serving them, they serve you. It means that all things are for you. All the things in this list, all things serve you and promote your good. We've been talking a lot about the absolute sovereignty of God, the comprehensive decrees of God, the meticulous providence of God. Listen, everything God does, everything God decrees is always and ultimately for the glory of his name and the good of his people. The world was made for the sake of the saints. The priority of God's providence is his people. He's doing all the things for his people. And so this is a summary and application, actually, of the end of Romans 8, both verse 28 and verse 32. For those who love God, all things work together for good. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. You see, in Christ, all things are yours in the sense that all things promote your ultimate good and work towards your eternal salvation and eternal joy. Right? Paul's saying in Romans 8.32, if he gave us the best thing, Christ, he's the best thing, we can know that he will also then with him graciously give us all things. And apparently, according to our passage, death is included in those all things that God graciously gives. And what? What in the world can it really mean that death is ours? You know that we love North Carolina. Lynn and I, we talked a lot about North Carolina and travels and the girls. She just loved hearing about the girls. We talked a lot about them and what we did. We go twice a year to see the family. We loved sabbatical. We loved extended time away. But it's always good to get home. Right? And it's a long road and ride. It ends up taking about 11 hours from my parents' house. And so when we get close, right, we, we talk to the girls. Hey, this is, this is our city. This is our borough. This is our neighborhood. This, this is our road. Right? Finally, we're at the end. We have been absent. Now, we are home. This road, our road, 41st Avenue, is the last step to home and rest. That's what death is for the Christian. That's how death is ours. If in Christ all things promote our ultimate good and work toward our eternal salvation and joy, and then death is included in that list, which Paul specifically does, then even death promotes our ultimate good and works toward our eternal salvation and joy. One old commentator, Albert Barnes, describes death for the Christian as, <laughs> we just don't agree with this anymore, as the advantageous 
circumstance in their history by which they are removed from a world of ills. Oh, church, we live in such a world of ills, right? Do we believe that yet? It's a world of ills. We're removed from that, and we are translated to a world of glory. Death is to them a source, we don't believe this, of inexpressible advantage as it translates them to a world of light and eternal felicity, and it may truly be called theirs. Christian, death to you is a source of inexpressible advantage. Because in Christ, death is merely the final step, the final road, our road, the means of moving us home. And this means objectively that Christians have nothing to fear from death. In Christ, death is ours. In Christ, the end only ends up promoting our ultimate end to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Again, why would we be afraid? I mean, just think logically, biblically, with what Paul is saying. Why would we be afraid of that which promotes and procures our ultimate good? Why would we live in anxiousness, in fear, in the face of death, just like the world does? No, death is different for us. Just read the Bible. It has been fundamentally transformed from enemy to friend, from uncertainty to certainty, from curse to blessing. But again, we, we, all, we know death is terrible. We know, it's, we know it's terrifying. We know the wages of sin is death. How can what Paul is saying here be true? Well, only because of the second and far more important point. Because you are Christ's. Christian, this is, who you, this is your fundamental identity. This is the thing you need to tattoo on your forehead and you need to, to think constantly, reminding yourself, reading everything through this lens. You are Christ's. Lydia was and is Christ's. And that changes everything. It's supposed to change everything. And this is how, and only how, the king of terrors, that is death, can be totally transformed. This is why... Twice in a short span, Paul repeats, 123, we preach Christ crucified. 2-2, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And why? Why is that the one thing? Why is Paul so obnoxiously repetitive and insistent with this one word? Because it's the one solution to the one problem that matters. Sin and death. And this evening, as we are faced with and forced to deal with death, we must likewise be faced with and forced to deal with a solution to death. I desperately want you to know that you will definitely die. You will. And I desperately want you to know that Christ is your only hope in death. And he is the only hope of anyone. And what if we actually believed that? What would we do as a church? What would the church do if we actually believed that everyone apart from Christ goes to hell. What would we do? Maybe things a little bit differently. Why is this the message? Why is Christ the only hope in death? It's because he died. That's the whole point. That's the gospel. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many and for Lydia. And that's how death is transformed. That's how Lydia could face death with the glad certainty that she did. I mean, because you know this, right? You're not supposed to talk about this 
at a memorial service, but you know that Lydia was a wretched sinner, right? You know that, right? As am I, as are all of us. You see, Lydia is not good right now because she was so good. Lydia is good right now because by the grace of God, her eyes were opened to how bad she was, and then she threw herself upon the mercy and grace of God in Jesus Christ. The Christ who loved her, came for her, lived for her, and died for her. The Christ that you could just see in her how much she loved and delighted in. Listen, that's why death is different for Lydia and for all who are in Christ. It's because we've already faced it. We've already died in Christ. We are his. And since he dies in our place, paying our debt, and since he rises again, we live with him forever. This is John 11. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, oh, Lydia believed in him. Though he die, Lydia died, yet shall he live. Lydia lives. See, death is ours because we are Christ's, and Christ has already defeated death. And so now death, really, it's only the entrance into life for those who are Christ's. Death is the doorman that takes us into the presence of the one that we most love because he first and perfectly loved us. Do you believe that? Yes, we mourn death, of course. Yes, death is so hard. It's been really hard for me. It's been really, really sad. Uh, We desperately miss our dear sister Lydia, as we should. But God, but is this all true or not? If it is, it would transform how we face and respond to death. Listen to Spurgeon. Lydia loves Spurgeon. He had a bunch of his books, so I feel fine. She'd always call me back to my attention because she'd notice I was looking at all her books. She'd be like, hey, pay attention. She had a wonderful library. Listen to Spurgeon here. This is wild. The only people, he says, for whom I have felt any envy. First of all, think about it. Who, do you, who are you envious of? Right? Who do we envy? It would be an embarrassing question to answer. Spurgeon says, the only per- people for whom I have felt any envy have been dying members of this very church. I know you have mourned for Lydia, and rightly so, but have you envied Lydia? If not, why not? She is in indescribable bliss in the presence of her Savior. This is not just something that we say. We actually believe that. This is not just a nice idea. This is not just some abstract principle that we kind of tell each other to, RIP, so we kind of encourage each other when things are said. No, we believe that because of this, because Christ is alive, because of his grace, that Lydia right now is living far more alive than any of us are. In a reality far better and far more real than we are in. For to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Remember, the whole Bible is the story of the presence of the Lord, right? That's the whole point of the story. The Lord in whose presence there is fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. That's where Lydia is. All because she is Christ's. And so, church, do we believe these two truths? Death is yours and you are Christ's. Do you really believe this? Do you believe that your best day is your last day? 
because it is your closest day to heaven and home. And Jesus, enjoy. Spurgeon, one last time. Death, what is it? It's the waiting room where we robe ourselves for immortality. Death is the gate of life. I will not fear to die then. I mean, that's just the fundamental Christian reality. We do not fear death. Church, do you fear death? What does your life demonstrate? Can you cry out with Paul? Again, this is the Christian life right here in one phrase. To live is Christ, to die is gain. And Paul goes on, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. That's death. He's talking about death. For that is far better. Lydia said that to me multiple times in her final days. Because in Christ, death is your servant. Death is yours because Christ is yours. One of the last days, she was still coherent and paying attention and, and talking back and forth. I sent her the first question of the Heidel Catechism, which beautifully begins with this. Christian, what is your only comfort in life and death? Only comfort that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. And find great comfort in the face of death in the only place that you can find it. In Christ, who is a faithful and kind and suitable Savior. He is yours. Trust Him. If He's not yours, He can be yours. Only believe. Is that not the thing that Lydia would most want to result from this evening? The Word of God working to bring a dead heart uh, from death to life. Um, that's what she would most love because she most loved her Savior. And she found such joy in him. And she was such a challenge. A lot of my, the, the divergence between my profession and my belief and a lot of my struggle and awareness of just the gap in some of the things, a lot of it's coming from Lydia because I see how she lived and I see how she died and I see just the, just the love that she had for Jesus and the great trust that she had and the constant encouragement that she was to me when I was supposed to be pastoring her and encouraging her is constantly coming this way. And so I want that. I want that gladness and that confidence and that joy that she found in Jesus Christ. And so she knew she is Christ's. And that was the fundamental truth that defined her life. And church, I pray that by her example and by the grace of God, that that would be the fundamental truth that defines our lives individually and our lives corporately as a church. This is why, because of death, this is why we preach Christ crucified. Let's, let's close with a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for how good and gracious you are to us. Father, we thank you that you are the great forgiver of sins. We thank you that you are a far greater Savior than we are sinners, which is unbelievable because we are great sinners. Father, we thank you that Lydia found life in your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have not dealt with her according to her sins, which were many, because you took and placed all of those sins on your son, Jesus Christ. And he died in her place, in Lydia's place, and rose again for the forgiveness of her sins. That though she die, yet right now, she lives. Father, may these not just be 
just things that we say. Father, may these be truths that drive us and delight us and that motivate us. Father, what a blessing Lydia was to this church in such a short period of time. You were so gracious to us in giving her to us. You were so gracious to us in taking her from us. Father, may we never be the same because of her example, because of uh, your grace uh, to us um, through her. Father, help us to imitate Lydia as she so sought to imitate her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, Father, help us to love each other like Lydia loved each other. Uh, what a challenge and encouragement, uh, Father, to do what we're commanded to do in Philippians chapter 2. Thank you for the example for me of what it means to put others before self and to seek their good rather than my own. Um, Father, we thank you for seeking our good uh, through our sister Lydia. We thank you that she's with you. We thank you that she's home. Father, help us to believe these things and find great confidence in Christ. Uh, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in us. Uh, may this be true for all of us, Lord. We ask and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.